a listener production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Wheelchair basketball star Ella Sabeljack was born with a very rare hereditary condition. Doctors didn't know much about it when she was a kid, but that meant she could set her own goals and she refused to live within other people's boundaries and limits. And that's pretty much how she's lived her life since. The basketball court has long been the place where she feels the most at home. But her road to the Paralympics has been far from easy, with her side failing to qualify for Rio and now with two of her teammates controversially banned from Tokyo. She's also on a mission to make sport in our schools more inclusive. She's working with not-for-profit organisation Sporting Wheelies to implement Paralympic sports into schools, giving all kids from all abilities the chance to participate, understand and appreciate the Paralympic events. But it all started back in Melbourne for one very sassy little Ella. Let's go way back to the beginning. Can you tell me what was little Ella Sabeljack like growing up? Oh, a pain. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? So growing up um, with my disability in and out of hospital, Mm -hmm. um, I would go in and my mum would always word me up, go, Ella, be nice. Just sit there. Don't don't give the doctor's (laughs) attitude. Um, I must have been pretty sussy. But yeah, I was, I was really, um, no, nobody could say no to me. You said no to me, I will do it. Um, I will, yeah, I was on the go constantly. I would test boundaries a lot. I would always run, jump, do it, do all the things that I couldn't do, but I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And I'd come home and I had bruises and scraped knees. And <laughs> this one time I remember in primary school, I was on the monkey bars and so my disability affects my hands as well mm. as my feet. And I don't think I really had a concept of how much it affected my hands. <laughs> and so like things like fine motor skills, like holding a pen and scissors, they were really hard. But I'm like, I can do monkey bars. <laughs> and <laughs> I was on the monkey bars and I was swinging around and I just, I didn't, didn't nail it. And so I fell flat on my face. I thought I broke my jaw. I didn't break anything, but I remember just like the the pain in my face. Mm. And I'm like, oh, well, I'll just get back up and do it again. So what was it? Did people tell you no and you just, that was just your character, that you just wanted to prove them wrong? Did people try to wrap you up in cotton wool? What was, what was the go? I just, I don't think people knew much mm-hmm. about my condition because my condition is really super rare, especially from mm. um, from birth. Usually it's acquired later on in life. And so everything that I had as a child was super experimental. They're like, oh, there's this new research out of here for kids with um, cerebral palsy or someone with this or someone with that, but let's give it a go on you. And I'm like, all right. Mm. And so I think because nobody really knew the progression of my condition from birth. Nobody really knew how how I'd walk or how I'd do anything. They kind of like really cautionary. Like I know mm. my mom, my family would they were never like that. But people who didn't know me, like teachers and people at school or doctors and the, you know, the external support that you have, they were just like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'm gonna do whatever I want. <laughs> 
Well, let's um, let's go into that and, and give a little bit of a context. Can you tell me about your condition? What it's called? Is it hereditary motor and sensory neuropath- neuropathy? Is that the, the the correct term? Tell me about it. The name has changed a lot. So it's I grew up thinking it was hereditary sensory motor neuropathy type two, but then it's kind of like more commonly known now as Charcot Marie Tooth, named after the three um, the three people who founded the condition. Right. Yeah, I feel like the other name makes more sense and puts it into context. Like hereditary, like okay, you yeah. know, it's you're going to pass it on. Sensory, yeah. you know, it's like your your senses, motor, motor skills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rather than three surnames. Yeah. Um, and you you said it's super rare. Yeah. So I don't know many people with um my condition. Mm. I'm I did meet a little prep the other day on one of my school visits. And she reminded me a lot of me, like she was like running and she like kicked a year 12 out of a chair. Like <laughs> she's like, I'm going to do it. And I'm like, I, I love you. <laughs> um, so, but I haven't met too many people with my condition. There's only maybe like three or four people that I've actually met. Wow. Okay. And they've acquired it later on in life. Okay. So you knew from birth? No. You acquired it from birth? No. Well, yes, but they picked it up when I was two. So right. when I started walking, um, I was like walking and I'd fall over, walk, fall over, walk, fall over. And mum's like, there's something, something's not right here. Mm. And so mum took me to doc- like numerous doctors and they were like, it's all in your head. It's, your, it's her nappy. It's club foot. Uh, it's this. Right. It's that. Like just a million different things rather than getting to the bottom of it. And my nan, my nan, she's just like, nah, not good enough. And she, they would got like nerve conduction tests and I wasn't responding. So, like, the nerve conduction tests, they're pretty painful. So, they're, like, a little, mm. I don't know, thing that they, like, shock you. Mm. And they, like, see the response for the nerves. And on my feet, it wasn't picking up anything. So, like, my toes, ankles, nothing. As I moved further up my leg, I started to get more responses. Mm. But, yeah, so from there, they're like, well, there's clearly something more than just, you know, it's just a nappy. Mm. From there, I can't remember when I had my first surgery. I see pictures of myself with like big purple casts on my feet and my legs up and huge smile on my face. And yeah, I just, I don't remember much Mm. of the, like early on. How old were you with that first surgery? Maybe five. What sort of surgery was it? So it affects the peripheral nerves and muscles. So all my my hands, my feet, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So um, nothing, not really spinal Mm-hmm. Not um, brain, which is I'm very I'm so lucky, mm. but yeah, it was I've had tendon transfers, I've had my ankles broken and refused, I've had a muscle or like a t- tendon taken out of my thigh and put in my hands, I've had oh. I, I don't even know. Uh, I look at my folder at the the hospital as a kid, and it was so thick. Do you know how many surgeries have you counted them? I know I, I think I was really lucky when, as a kid mm. that they could do both feet at once. Sure. So maybe like fifteen. Right. As like during my childhood, um, I haven't had a surgery since I was six, 16 or 17, my last surgery. And did that make a difference, the surgeries? Uh, I think so. Yeah. So the way that I was walking, I was walking real flat footed mm-hmm. because I don't, I don't have any muscles in my feet, my calves and sort of like just above my knees where it starts to deteriorate. So my quads are really um, low muscle tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... 
I was walking flat foot because I couldn't pick my feet up. And so I was just like planting them on the ground. And my gait, my walking was terrible. Like I'd walk with my butt out and it was, I was always self-conscious of my walking. Mm. And I'd wear splints as a kid and hated them. Like, no, nope, not wearing them. Can't wear cute <laughs> shoes with them. Can't wear cute dresses. Like, no, nope, don't want to wear them, but that. Yeah. Does it deteriorate over time, your condition? Yeah, it's supposed to. But, yeah, we don't, we don't know at what rate. Uh, I don't think it's life. Um, it affects my lifespan mm-hmm. at all, which is good. Um, it'll just maybe, as I get older, can't walk as far or have mm. to, like, go to a chair. I do remember as a kid walking in front of a panel of doctors. I walked in and around the doctors and they're all looking at their clipboards and they're like, why are you walking? And I'm like, what do you mean? Why am I walking? And they're like, on paper, it says that you shouldn't be walking. And I'm like, well, here I am. <laughs> You're like, I didn't read that. So yeah. <laughs> didn't get that memo. Sorry. No, no. And you said that um, because it usually happens later in life, how later in life does it usually show itself? Um, well, I, have a t- I had a teammate who had it and she was fully able-bodied, played able-bodied basketball, was running like pretty athletic and then it hit her at about not 18, 19. She just noticed that her, she just right. got foot drop and, yeah, she was struggling with stairs. She couldn't pick her feet up to go upstairs. We have a different type. So mm-hmm. I'm type 2 and I think she was type 1 mm-hmm. where hers was um, her, I think her dad was a carrier of the gene mm-hmm. where I've done all um, genetic testing and nobody knows where my gene came from. Nobody, like, it was just a mutation of something. Yeah. Yeah, it, it affected us quite differently. And I think because maybe I had all the surgeries quite young and she hasn't had any surgeries. Mm. So she's just kind of taken it on and absorbed it and doing all the right things now where I was a kid and I'm like, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> I don't want to do therapies. I don't want to do it. I don't yeah. want to wear the splints. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm doing well now. Like, it's not. It's not like it's affected me. I was about to say, how does it affect you in day-to-day life? How does it show and how does it affect you? A lot of the time when I meet people, they're like, oh, we didn't even know. And I'm like, oh, Mm. great. But I did spend a lot of my teenage years trying to hide it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't want to be seen as a kid with a disability. Even though I was walking around with a, in high school, I had a walking frame, like a grandma walking frame, Mm. like as if nobody knew. (laughs) <laughs> and I I hated doing that, but I needed it because school was quite big to walk around and mm. I needed a walking frame and the kids just loved it. They just played on it, jumped on it and we fell over and all my friends were brilliant. Um, but like now, I think the biggest thing that affects me now is just like stairs mm-hmm. and long, like long distance walking and clothes. Oh, getting dressed in the morning is sometimes a nightmare, mm. especially like I'm a primary school teacher. Mm. So I, you have to look professional. You have to look the part and everything's like a zip or a button. And I'm like, I just want independent clothing. I just want to be able to dress myself without going, Matt, can you do this button up for me? So fiddly things because it affects yeah. your hands, fiddly things. Yeah. Fine motor skills, like the, the buttons. Oh hate buttons. Yeah. I have a button on my shirt at the back at the moment and it's not done up and I'm like, I don't even care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think the buttons are done up in my back because that's more like forgetting yeah, it this so, morning. So <laughs> it's so hard. And so, yeah, it's 
I've had few meltdowns in the morning, sort of like before training, like after training. So I train in the morning and then get, get dressed really quickly, then go to work. And some mornings I'm just like, I, I can't, I can't get dressed. Mm-mm. I'm just going to have a meltdown. I'm like, no, pull yourself together. <laughs> <laughs> there are people here who can help you. <laughs> and buy clothes without buttons and zippers. Yeah, yeah I hear God, you. It's so hard. Cute clothes are hard to come by. You mentioned before that you were a primary school teacher. How did you find fitting that in around your basketball commitments? Yeah, so I, I did my primary school degree and then I worked full-time as a primary school teacher. It was just so hard. It was mm. it was hard to do work and train full-time. So I um, had a dream job. Couldn't keep going with the dream job. Mm. Put that on hold. Because of basketball. Because of basketball. Mm. Yeah. And then I'm not one to really sit still. So I kept going to, I then furthered my studies. I did a postgrad in um, positive mental health and wellbeing, which has been awesome. Like it's so transferable from sport Mm. and teaching and life. It's incredible. Yeah. Now I'm just relief teaching and potting along after Tokyo. I think I'll get a real adult job, but stay tuned. (laughs) Can you tell me, did your, I love hearing about with all our athletes that we have on the show, just the messages that their parents sent to them as a kid. For you, your mum and your dad, what were the messages that they sent to you about your condition and about who they wanted, who you, they wanted you to be, but who you wanted to be? I guess I was really lucky to have a really sporty family. Mm-hmm. My sister played, well, did Taekwondo. Um, at a quite high level, and so did my mum. So it was really lucky to see them just give it all and do it all. And mum's like, you can do anything, just do it. Mm. So, yeah, my mum's super, super supportive. When I moved away, so I grew up in Melbourne and I moved up to the Gold Coast. When I was making this decision, my dad's side of the family, they're Croatian, so it's all, you know, education, education, sport, you know, don't, you're not a, you can't make money being an athlete. You can't make anything of yourself doing that. Mm. And my grandma, very old school thinking, she's like, no, education number one, like you have to stay in school. And I'm like, why can't I do both? Mm -hmm. Why can't I be an athlete and, you know, still study and have an education? Mm. And my dad, I remember sitting on the couch with him and he's just like, just do it. You only live once, do it. And I'm like, oh, good, done. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. Off yeah. to the Gold Coast. Were you, sp- you said you were really sporty, really active when you were a kid. Did you participate in a lot of sports um, when you were a kid, even though you had your condition? Yeah, I remember into school sports on a Friday Arvo, loved netball. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, I'm going to play netball. And the te- I remember the teachers just like, oh, Ella, maybe we'll put you in like a goal, like a goalkeeper or someone that doesn't run. And I'm like, no, nah, I want wing attack. <laughs> I want to, I want to be center. <laughs> um, and so they're like, all right, can I? reluctantly put me on. Yes. And I'd fall over and I'd scrape knees and sit there and they're like, Alan, you know, we told you that it was going to be hard. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, yeah, just, just let me do it. Yeah. And, um, I actually remember, oh, PE, hate PE, hated PE. Why is that? I just felt like, even though like teachers made 
some accommodations. Like I had a runner in ba- in softball or baseball mm-hmm. or t-ball or whatever it was. You know, there was a runner, but I'm like, I want to do it. I want to be mm. the runner. Just like I just felt like it wasn't for me. Mm. Like I could never find my groove. Was it because they were making allowances and you wanted to do it on your own, whether you fell down or not? Or was it because you you didn't like the sports or you didn't? I just didn't feel like me. Mm. So I could never find something that I identified with. Mm. I wanted to give it all a go and I wanted to do it all, but I could never find something that I just like, I'm, I'm at home here. And I remember playing, uh, trying wheelchair basketball for the first time when I was in grade two. And it was on the other side of town at like a rehab gym. And we'd go there, loved it, loved mm. it. The people were so cool. And I remember meeting people that I'm really good friends with now and playing playing with them. And I'd go to school the next day in, the, in PE. I don't know, we were running. I was we were doing something. And I'm like, I'm just going to go sit on this park bench over here and practice pushing. Like I'm grade two or grade three and I'm on the side just like pushing an invisible wheelchair on the side of the court. Was that the first time you'd been in a wheelchair? Yeah, that was the first time I think I'd played something that I felt like I'm, I'm here, you know. Did you see the Paralympics? Did you know about the Paralympics? You know what, I probably do remember watching it. Mm. but super young. The Mm. only sort of like memories I kind of have of it are Beijing and London and watching it on TV Mm -hmm. because I was involved in the sports at those times. Mm. So I kind of like I knew the people that were were going and I knew um, of the sports and I was actively doing it. But then I don't really remember learning much about it in school. I'm sure my mum would have had us watching it. Because we get so many Paralympians on the show and they all say, well, I didn't know there was yeah. the Paralympics on before no. I became a competitor and the difference that that would have made to them had yeah. they been able to be exposed to it. Yeah, exactly. I um, So being a teacher now, I'm exposed to a lot of kids and there's this one mm. little girl and she was born without a hand. So mm-hmm. she has like a little, little, little stump on the end of her arm and I'm like, did you know that there are the Paralympic Games? And I'm like, do you love to run? And she's like, yeah, I love running. And she's like in grade four and (laughs) super hyperactive. And I'm like, you know, there's swimming, you can do athletics. Like there's so many options for you. And I showed her um, some footage of like Carly Beattie and Mm -hmm. Annie Williams and all of these like arm amputees. And I'm like, look what you can do. And I don't think she, I don't think she gets it. Um, being grade four, you're just like, yeah, cool, whatever. <laughs> but I'm like, I hope that I can spark something in her that one day she'll be like, you know, I can do it. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. Did you look up to anyone when you were, when you were growing up? Any other athletes? Did you have any mentors or um, role models? I had a little bit of a um, fangirl moment over Louise Sauvage. <laughs> nice. So I remember as a kid, I did an assignment on her. Um, so I stalked her and it would have been, it would have been maybe Sydney, after Sydney, mm-hmm. between Sydney and Beijing. Yeah. Um, in primary school, yeah, I had, I'd made a poster about her. I met her once and I'm just like, oh my God, that's Louise. Yeah. Oh God, that's, that's her. I played <laughs> basketball against her and she's so fast. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Did you tell her that you got a poster about her? God, you didn't no. Tell her, no. No, no way. 
She knows now though. <laughs> I feel like you're very, you're still fangirling over yeah. Louise. She is amazing. She is yeah, amazing. Incredible. And has done a lot for Australian sport. Oh, hasn't she? And she's so humble. She's yeah. just works hard, gets on with it, does the best for women in sport and just wants the best for everybody. So basketball, when you were in grade two and you sat down and tried wheelchair basketball, that was the start of it for you? Were you hooked? Was that was that it? No. Well, I think I went maybe like four or five times, but it was hard for mum because we had um, my younger sister. There's, so there's seven years between me and my younger sister. Mm-hmm. And so it's my older sister and I, and then seven years between with our younger one. Mm-hmm. And so Sean was a baby. We lived in Yarraville. Training was over in, um, over the other side of town. So t- to get, you know, me over there, mum was um, pretty much on her own. And it was, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle to get me over to training. So it was mm. kind of, it's there, but we can't get her there. And so I kind of, we tried to look for things over our side of town, but there was nothing. There was, mm. well, we didn't, we didn't know. And then when I was 16, we were contacted by um, Kay Coleman out in Geelong and she runs the, the programs out there. So she does the wheelchair racing and the wheelchair basketball in Geelong. And um, she's like, oh, your name's just come across our our desk, you know, we'd love to have you on. How old is Ella? Um, she's still in primary school. And mum's like, no, she's 16. Like, <laughs> what, what do you mean? Is she still in primary school? They're like, oh, we just have like a year old here. And so I went out and I did wheelchair racing. Mm-hmm. Hated it. Oh my God. As in athletics racing? Yeah. yeah. Yep. The long the distance bike, like, or short distance or? Honestly, just sitting in it and pushing was hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> I tried, I tried doing the sprints but I was not good at it. I don't know. I, I found it really challenging because I am quite a talker and I like talking <laughs> to people. And I would go around and I was training with like some of the most incredible athletes like Richard Coleman. I was training with, you know, Sam McIntosh, Jemima, and they were brilliant. They were so, so welcoming, but that was so good and I sucked. And so <laughs> they, would go, they would go around the court, around the track and they'd lap me and I'm like, hey, okay, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> and I put up with it for, for quite a while. But I'm like, oh, it's just not for me anyway. So um, I was lucky that Kay had a wheelchair basketball team in Geelong as well. Mm-hmm. Wheelchair sports is, it's so funny because there's, there's no funding, but you just have these people who go above and beyond for everybody. Mm. And there's nothing. Like there's... The quality of chairs were really bad and, you know, the the tyres were bald and you'd skid everywhere and mm. you'd get sort of like a really terrible time on court. It's like 2pm on a Sunday afternoon or something. Nobody wants to go to a basketball stadium at 2pm on a Sunday. Like, <laughs> but, you know, they had it and people would show up and it was fun and I was there. I couldn't shoot a basketball, couldn't hit the net, couldn't push a chair. But I loved being around people and I loved people. I loved the, the chat and the banter and, <laughs> you know, the no matter who you are and where you've come from or what your condition is, level of ability, it didn't matter. Mm. So, yeah, and that's, I think, when I really started enjoying playing sport. So it was your tribe? You found your tribe yeah. in wheelchair basketball. And you were 16 at the time? Yep. 
And did they just take off from there? You said you weren't good when you started, couldn't shoot no. a basketball, couldn't move a wheelchair. How did it all change? I think people were super desperate, actually. And I was put in a a situation where I should not have been in. As in, I got invited to the Victorian women's training care or training sessions over the mm-hmm. other side of town again. So they were over in um, Dandenong, so like an hour and a half to hour drive from where we lived. Mm. So I'd go over there and I'm like, I don't. I don't know why I'm here. Like, I can't, I can't do all this stuff. Mm. Didn't understand like the concepts of basketball, but I was put in the deep end and people must have seen, I don't know, like a go-getter or someone who just would go, go, go um, in me. So they like, they invested some time in me, which was wonderful. And I loved it. I loved being around other women in the sport as well. Mm. You could really see that these people, even though you had a disability, you could achieve and do whatever you wanted. Yeah. And so I, re- I really loved seeing that. Can you explain to me how wheelchair basketball works, the point system? Because you're a 1.0. Yeah. What does that so, mean? So I'm a 1.0, which means I've got like the least amount of ability um, on court. So you have a 4.0, oh, sorry, a 4.5 to a 1.0, and you're all based on your level of ability. So 4.5 is minimal disability, most able, mm-hmm. um, and they sit up quite high in their chairs. And then you've got your midpointers who sort of would be, I would like to say sort of like, if you think about um, a paraplegic or someone affected in their, in their midsection, so they don't really maybe have all of their abs, but they can still manoeuvre in their chairs quite well. So they're more of your ball carriers. And then as you get sort of down the line to like, you know, your twos and your ones, you're most affected. So high level paraplegics. I'm a 1.0 because my hands are affected. So if I can't really, well, I can push my chair, but not um, as good as everybody else can. Mm. And so if I catch a ball, it has to be a really good pass. Like if it's passed outside of my cylinder, it'll just go straight through my hands. Mm. Yeah. So that's how we're all kind of classified in wheelchair basketball. And you have to have 14 points on the court at any one time. Yeah, 14 points. So you could have two 4.5s, a 2.5 and two one-pointers. Or you can have a bunch of threes. Is everyone constantly just adding up? Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, and remembering what everyone, classification everyone is? Yeah, so it's it's hard to keep up and that's usually the assistant coach's job. And if you go over, you get to tech foul. So the other point, the other team gets to shoot a foul shot. Right. And you kind of like, if something doesn't add up and you're on the bench and you're looking at it, you're like, well, this combination, I've never seen them work together before. You're like, Quick, quick, guys, get a, get them off, sub, sub, <laughs> before the rest catch on. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's cool. What is it that about wheelchair basketball that makes it so difficult that maybe able-bodied people wouldn't understand if they hadn't tried the sport? What's like something oh. that they might be surprised about? How hard it is to push and bounce a ball. So push mm. a chair, bounce a ball, stop struggle to stop a chair. So I use my arms. So I've got all these bruises and cuts and burns up my arms from tires. And I actually, I um, went to a doctor once because I was super tired and I was just sitting there with my arm, my head in my hand. And I'm just like, I just want a blood test. Like maybe my iron levels are low. Mm. And this doctor's looking at my arms and he's like, um, are you okay? Like what's, what's going on at home? are you, what's happening in your situation? Like, why are you tired? What's your partner like? And I'm like, oh, he's brilliant. I'm like, if anything, I'm the, 
if I'm the exhausting one, I'm like, <laughs> oh no, he's, he's fine. And they're like, because, you know, your arms are presenting like you're in a, a domestic violent relationship. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, wow. I'm like, one, I'm like, no, no way. Like it's, everything's fine. I, I assure you. But then I'm like, how wonderful of this doctor just to sort of probe the situation mm. a bit to find. You're like, no, like, I play uh, wheelchair basketball like, and these are like the tyres. Like, this is from the tyres. This <laughs> is my sport. Yeah. Well, well, tell me, when did you first start thinking that the Olympics was your goal? I remember watching the girls in London and I knew, I knew the girls in London and I knew I played National League with them. And I'm like, they got silver. And I'm like, oh, over the moon for the gliders. Like they got silver. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to go there. I want to be them. So after London, as per every sort of like four cycles, you get a new Mm. coach. Also, they look at the coaching staff. And the coach coach at the time, or who was appointed Tom, he was Mm Brisbane-based. And um, I was playing for Victoria at the time. And then the girls kind of recruited me to play for Queensland. So I went and I would travel from Melbourne to, Vic, uh, sorry, Melbourne to Brisbane. I'd play there. And then I'm like, I can actually, yeah, I'm, I can get something from this. So then I made, I made the move to Brisbane to train under Tom. Mm-hmm. And he really, he was maybe one of the first coaches that ever kind of believed in me. Mm. He's just like, you know, you can, you can do it. Never made excuses for me, you know. Mm. He, he one's like, we'll push me and he's like, Alice, stop gliding. You're not a glider yet. And I'm mm. like, oh, yeah, you're right. I've got to, I've got to push harder. And so he'd always sort of like dangle a carrot in front of you and want to get it. But also he was so nurturing in his, um, in what he did. And it was just, it was really nice to have somebody who believed in you in the sport mm. um, as well. Like, especially because I was kind of thrown into it mm. and you don't, like he kind of like miss out on the basics or you do things and you don't know why you're doing them. Mm. Um, and because I started on, I started quite late, you miss out on all the fundamentals and so you've got to pick them up as you go along. Mm. And yeah, so moving up here, training under Tom, I met my partner up here and yeah, like we trained together. So Matt and I trained together. He he plays on the men's team and sort of like he's super, super motivated, super mm. driven and I'm like, oh, well, that's what I've got to be like. That's what mm. I have to do and sort of like jump on the back of that and push myself and learn through these other people that I'm that I'm with and mm. these other people who believed in me and, you know, gave me an opportunity to see what I could do, mm. even though maybe you didn't believe it. Unfortunately, we didn't qualify for Rio, um, our team. So there was one spot for our zone and we were playing against Japan and China and we lost the gold medal game. And that's what you needed to do to qualify for Rio. Yeah, and we didn't qualify. Was that the first time in how long the gliders hadn't made the Paralympics? Ever, forever. Right. Yeah. Tell me about what was going through your, as a team then, when you didn't make the Paralympics, when it was something that I guess you were expected to make mm. for a team psychologically. How did that affect you? It was hard. There was a lot of blame. There was a lot of denial. There was a lot of what ifs. It was super hard. 
I was a bench, so I was a bench player. I don't think I played, I played maybe like 10 minutes a game, if that, which was brilliant. And I did my job and I did my job really well. And so sitting back and watching it, it was, yeah, it was really hard because you could, you know, our potential and we know that we can do better. And it just wasn't our day. We didn't perform well. And afterwards, you know, we're like, well, can we have another tournament with all these other players, these other teams, sorry, that didn't qualify? Surely that there's another way that we can get to the games. And it was not. That was it. That was it. Mm-hmm. Done. And so you kind of like a little bit lost. And I, I did go to Rio with Matt. So Matt, the rollers, the men's team, they went to Rio and I went over as a spectator. And I remember sitting in the stadium watching China play. So we we lost against China. And I remember they were were playing maybe France or someone. Mm. And it was, oh, it was a terrible game. Mm. And I got really emotional and I sat there and I was watching and I'm like, this should have been us. Like Mm. we should have been here. And that was a little bit of a roller coaster of emotions, just going, being there. And I've never been to a Paralympic Games, mm. but that really motivated me to want to get there, mm. to want mm. to do it. And so, you know, you go back and you put a lot of work into your mindset. You put a lot of work into your training, your diet, your life, you know, it just it puts everything into a bit of perspective about mm. what you want and the sacrifices that you have to make to get there. Mm. Sounds like something clicked in you, that it was a bit of a watershed moment would have been yeah. bittersweet supporting Matt and his the Australian team, the Australian men's team there. But yeah. then to to think, well, I could have been here. But it sounds like something clicked in you then that yeah, you knew what you wanted to do now. Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. And um, yeah, got home, refocused, and yeah, now we went to. We had the qualifiers for the world championships the next year. So we don't really get time to sit around and mm. have a lot of downtime at all. Mm. It's sort of like, here's the, the major tournament. Have a couple of weeks off, straight back into it. Mm. Straight back into our league, straight back into, you know, Australian commitments. And we had our qualifiers the next year for our world championships. So we had to hope that China did well in Rio. Mm-hmm. So that would bring our zone, we would get more spots for our zone, which would open up a lot more for us. Yeah. Um, and we did, we had two spots for our zone. Mm. I can't I can't remember where China came, but we ended up having two spots for our zone mm-hmm. in um for our world championships. And we qualified. What was that like when you qualified for Tokyo? It was I remember just sitting there and just be like, did that just happen? <laughs> Are we going to Tokyo? Like we, yeah, our team just gelled, something clicked. We were so, we played together as a team and we supported each other and yeah, we got the job done. Mm-hmm. So it was just euphoric almost. I remember sitting there and looking up at the scoreboard and be like, did this just happen? Did we just qualify for the Tokyo Paralympic Games? Are we going to Tokyo? <laughs> <laughs> and you thought that was twenty twenty. Yeah, God. So what was it like then with all that build-up for four years and working so hard for four years and off the back of the disappointment of not making Rio, you heard that that were going to be postponed. Yeah. What was your reaction? Oh, initially I'm like, well, are we ever going to get there? Mm. Is it ever going to happen? 
I guess just felt like we as a team have been working so hard. We've mm. sacrificed so much and we don't get paid. Like we get minimal, minimal money mm. to train full-time and be a full-time athlete. So there's a lot of sacrifice in our life, especially in a team sport. Like individual sports, they get a little bit more funding mm-hmm. and they can get like sponsorships, but we really struggle as well and because we haven't done well. So our funding is based on our um, podium potential. Mm. And so we haven't really been successful in the past couple of years. So therefore we're not going to get as much funding. However, Mm. it's like a catch-22 situation. You need to get better as a team, which means you need to play more. You need to train Mm. more. You need to have more time off, whatever you're doing, but it's just not feasible. Mm. It's not like you have to have a job. You have bills to pay. Life Mm. gets in the way. And that's a real... A real struggle, I think, for our team, especially because we want to be better. We mm. want, we want to, we are hungry. But in terms of like the financial support of it, sometimes it's really, it's tough. Mm. It's a really tough choice. So, yeah. But when, yeah, when COVID came, COVID came along, good old COVID, it was pretty like, I felt like, I don't know, I was a bit sad. But I was sad because we had a lot of stuff happening in our team as well, like we have had classification issues and the Paralympic Committee. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about because I'm really interested in these classification issues that, that you've had. So your team qualified for the Tokyo Games. You've packed yeah. your bags, essentially, um, yeah. and are ready to go. And there's some controversy because two of your teammates have been deemed yep. ineligible. Eligible. Why is that? So as part of the Paralympic Committee, they're... Um, their guidelines around minimal disability, there's a criteria, there's nine, I think, nine categories that you need to fit into. And if you don't fit into those nine categories, you're not classifiable, regardless of... um, That's across all sports in the Paralympics? All sports in the Paralympics. Mm. So, swear, like a lot of other sports have been affected, but not to the extent of wheelchair basketball. So, wheelchair basketball is probably one of the most inclusive sports in the Paralympic Games, meaning that we have people with minimal disabilities on the floor with people who have pretty high needs. Mm. And so it's a it's a level playing field because you have to make up um, 14 points. Everybody has a classification. So it goes from a 4.5 player, 4, 3.5, 3, all the way down to a 1.0. Mm. And you need 14 points on the court at all times. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're very inclusive in terms of, hey, you've had a few knee surgeries, knee reconstruction, you can't jump, move around like you used to. And it's quite severe in terms of like it affects your day-to-day life. We're like, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll take you, jump in, jump mm-hmm. in a chair, have some fun. And then, yeah, so two of our teammates, Annabelle and Tisha, they, so Annabelle used to play able-bod basketball in Canberra and mm-hmm. she did her knees playing basketball and her injury just kept getting worse and worse and worse. No matter how much rehab she did, she couldn't she couldn't walk properly. Like her, every step she'd take, her knees would dislocate and dislocation isn't part of the criteria. And even though she has like low muscle tone in her quads because of her injuries mm. and whatever she's had, they look at her knee dislocation as not part of her classifiable condition, which 
she can't run, she can't jump, she can't ride a bike. And you see other people who have been deemed eligible mm. and they're running, they're jumping, they're riding bikes, they're doing And I'm just like, where is the fairness in this? Mm. And did the categories change for this year, for 2020? Why is it that they can help, like, it help you and be part of the team to qualify for the Games but then not play? So the International Wheelchair Basketball Federation, mm-hmm. they had a different classification model to the IPC. Mm. Not too dissimilar, but they were sort of more inclusive with the minimal disability mm. category. So they they all voted on it, the Paralympic Committee, um, and sort of like stuck to their stuck to their guns a bit. And they're like, this is our criteria, the nine, the nine points. You either fit in it or you don't fit in it. Mm. And yeah, the nine points are, you know, limb limb difference, um, muscle tone, but they're very clear on things that don't make you classifiable. Mm. So like dislocations, pain, connective tissue things. Um, yeah, they're very clear on things that don't match mm. the criteria. Where if you look at it, these people who are suffering these conditions, they bring so much to our sport, so mm. much competition so many people but yeah it's it's a little bit confusing and I know I know everyone's still trying to get their head around what's happened Mm. between the IWBF and the IPC um, because it is quite political between them both and they Mm. I'm sure that they want to both make a you know an amicable solution and have more of a professional relationship but Essentially, the IPC have turned around to the IWBF and they've said, you either fit in with our new classification model or you don't go to Paris. I want to talk about the schools program because you alluded at the start just about how you didn't like PE because you just didn't feel like it's you. And then when you were in wheelchair basketball, like you were like, that was you. You just felt, you know, that you're at home there. You're currently working with sporty wheelie, Sporting Wheelies on a new sports program. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so um, I love getting into schools and I love bringing um, the awareness of the Paralympic Games to schools. Mm. And so we, uh, go, we go into schools and we, we teach them a variety of different sports. So wheelchair basketball, boccia, um, rugby, whatever the school kind of wants. So we offer... We offer them the chairs and our services and we teach them how to play and how to be super inclusive. And it's so funny, like some of the kids like get in the chairs and they're like, wow, it's not, e- it's not easy. <laughs> how, yeah. how do you do this? And like they want to like jump up and like throw their legs out. We're like, no, keep your legs tucked in. You can't, you can't stand, got to keep your butt in. But yeah, it's awesome. And I think especially this is purely selfish. We don't have a lot of women with a disability in sport. Mm. We don't have a lot of women in sport, but finding a woman with a disability who likes to play sport is like that other mm. barrier. So I feel like if we get into schools and Sporting Wheel is really supportive of this, we can find more people in schools who who may know somebody in a dis- with a disability or may know, um, you know, the, a cousin or they may have a disability and they can play and they can see how awesome it is and how much mm. fun What's the Paralympic sport that you bring into schools that kids get the biggest kick out of or are shocked by just how difficult it is or different it is? I, w- I want to say wheelchair basketball, but it isn't. Um, <laughs> goalball. And it's all about being 
vision impaired. Mm. So vision impaired and it's, you know, you've got your, your goals and your, your three people, um, three or four people, and you've got to knock the ball into the other people's goals and everyone is blind. So mm. no matter what your your vision impairment is, everyone has a blindfold on. So everyone just sees the same blackness and you've got to listen for the ball with the bells in it. So you've got to hear and you've got to use all your senses and you've got to be really alert. So I do this thing with the kids and I'm like, well, you know, close your eyes. Can you hear the bell? And I like shake the ball and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, put your hands over your eyes. Now it's even darker. I'm going to shake the ball. Can you hear it? And they're just like, it's so much louder. And then we give them the blindfolds and so it's completely dark and they've got to really listen and you see the kids struggle and they're like listening and they're trying to get the ball and they're like having fun. And it's all just about learning about the different senses mm. as well and how it heightens those and it's, they're just like, wow, that's so impressive. And do you see in the kids that they do have a greater interest in Paralympics and understanding of it after yeah. this program? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. They're just, they're so engaged. And there's one school that we've been at, there's a few of our young kids who come to basketball that are at this school and it's just seeing them and they're comfortable and it's about them and their sport. And, mm. you know, you see their maids come up to them and they put their arm around them and they're like, good job. And they love it and they just want to be friends with you. And you can just see like their smiles on their face. They're like, yeah, it's about me. I'm, I'm happy. Like, yeah, this is what I'm about. So that's always the best feeling. And we finish this podcast by asking our guests what advice you would give to your 10-year-old self. I think I would tell myself it's going to be okay and everyone goes through whatever you're going through and you're not alone. You'll never be alone, um, yeah, with whatever you're going through. And I'm, I'm teaching puberty at the moment to you, to some grade fives. Mm. So it's kind of like that same age and it's like the, the whole fitting in and finding out who you are and the journey that you go on to figure out who you are is very confusing and you're mm. not going to be alone. So re always reach out. I think that would be the biggest bit of advice. Ellis Applejack, thank you for coming on On Her Game. Oh my gosh, no, thank you guys. I feel a little <laughs> bit of like an imposter on here. Not at all. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.